Hi everyone, this is Devin from Fluvio and you're listening to Embracing Erosion, the podcast that lets you inside the heads of product marketers, investors, and go-to-market leaders who tackle changes head-on and turn them into competitive advantages. On this episode of Embracing Erosion, I had on James McGinnis. James is the CEO and co-founder of David Energy, a new type of energy provider that recently raised a $20 million Series A round co-led by Union Square Ventures. He's also the co-founder of the DER Task Force, the Community for Distributed Energy Enthusiasts. You'll learn on the show that DER stands for Distributed Energy Resources. Before co-founding David Energy, James studied engineering at the University of Texas, Austin, where he founded and led a team of over 30 engineers that competed in the Elon Musk-led SpaceX Hyperloop pod competition. Isn't that a mouthful? With that team, they ultimately won the SpaceX Innovation Award. So today's intro is a little bit longer, and uh, who knows, maybe this will become a trend. Again, this is my show, so hopefully you get used to it and maybe even enjoy it. Who knows? A couple disclosures to start. First, I've known James, or Bo, as you'll hear that I refer to him as, and his entire family since I was about two years old. And I'm also a small investor in his company, David Energy. By now, you should know that this podcast puts a spotlight on those that have not just witnessed or absorbed change, but truly embraced it. And James certainly is one of these people. The energy grid is changing dramatically. With wind, solar, EVs, and smart thermostats abound, it's quickly becoming decentralized. You'll hear that James relates this to the early days of the internet. He noticed this massive change was underway while he was in high school, and he's taking it head-on with David Energy. James is one of those people who turns left while all others are turning right. For example, we chat a bit about how he has not followed most of the VC-backed tech companies who are dramatically reducing burn and trimming headcount. Instead, he's taking advantage of a market that seems to be frantically spiraling into a herd mentality. He has continued to hire. He's continued to believe in the signals that are indicating now is not the time to slow down. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy our conversation. All right. Thanks for joining me, James. Uh, I will admit it feels a little strange to call you James. I've known you Bo my whole life. Whatever feels right, man. <laughs> so I might go with Bo. So Bo, I'm super excited to have you on today. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, man. I'm excited. So let's jump right in. Um, let's chat about how you got to where you are today. I'd love to hear a little bit more about your story, about how you came to co-found David Energy, and why you're so passionate about upending the energy space. Yeah. So I, you know, even starting probably from high school, actually in Mr. Webb's class, I think is when the original interest started in uh, sort of the energy transition and decarbonizing um, the energy sector in particular. I thought a lot about it through college, uh, studying physics and math, just sort of what was the best way at the problem. And then when I went, I was, I entered a master's PhD program at the University of Texas, Austin. Uh, where actually I lived with your brother when yeah, I moved down there. <laughs> um, intertwined. They are very intertwined. Um, and, uh, and yeah, at the time it was, it was really interesting. You know, I was actually originally intending on like working on the natural gas rigs down there as a mechanical engineer during, during the summer, but 
um, there was a huge solar and wind boom going on in, in Texas of all places where it was clear that we were at this inflection point sort of in the energy transition where people were installing solar and wind just because they were our cheapest sort of best resource and um, just made kind of financial sense. So I got really interested in that space. Um, basically, though, the problem that everyone was talking about at the time is that when there's no the sun's not out and the wind's not blowing, there's no power. So even though it's our cheapest resource, like how do we operate renewable heavy grids? And that got me interested in sort of with my physics background, I was looking at a PhD in battery storage science or the other side of it, maybe doing a PhD in like grid modeling, like how to run renewables heavy grids. And um, through that got really fascinated with what is largely called the distributed energy resource space or DERs. It's like a broad category of new resources across battery storage, rooftop solar, electric vehicles, smart thermostats, um, resources that are marked by two features, like they're going in customer homes and buildings and they're digitally native, which is way, way different than say like the coal plants and new natural gas plants we used to build. So I started working part-time in local solar and battery design and engineering, like actually getting on rooftops and installing. And basically, by the end of that two-year exploration, like when it was time to enter my PhD program, I had realized and done enough research on my own that um, really the best way to address the problem of operating a renewables heavy grid was to just go out and build a company. And so I left that program with my master's, um, shortly thereafter moved back up to New York and really kind of started working on David Energy in earnest. Uh, but yeah, so it, it, it really just kind of was this natural progression to me, even started feeling like since high school where I was really fascinated with the problem. And, and that led me ultimately to, to founding a company to try and solve that problem. Sure. So it started with an interest, young age, obviously recognized a problem, saw that there was sort of some financial, um, avenue there. So what exactly gave you the confidence to start a company at such a young age while you were really just coming out of school? Yeah. So it's funny. You know, I, I don't think I would have done it if I didn't, if the, if the problem interest weren't there. In fact, I was like looking for companies I could go work at. And I've sort of always been the one, even the way I think about it is like when a teacher asks a question in class, I just like look around and if no one's answering, like I'll speak up. Like if, if someone's got to start the conversation, I'm happy to. So I just didn't see anyone building what I wanted to see built. So it didn't even really feel like a choice to me. I was just like, okay, I have to go do this. But at the same time, I had worked on um, very similar dynamic, actually, heading into my master's program, SpaceX announced this big competition for building the Hyperloop concept. And transportation was another interest of mine, like riding Amtrak and taking buses down to DC. Like there's no good way to get from New York City to DC. So yeah, I was always both, interested in it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's terrible. It's like, <laughs> yeah, it takes five experience. hours, whether you fly, drive, or take a train, um, which is crazy. Um, and so they announced this Hyperloop idea and they said they were going to build like a one mile tube to, and, and invite teams to build pods to then race in on the track they're building. And so I emailed the, the grad department and just said like, Hey, is anyone building a team? And if not, like, do you want to meet? So really the first week I got to UT, I became like the founder and leader of this project. Um, and it just kind of snowballed where like we committed to doing the, um, competition we designed a pod 
And then we started raising money to build the pod. And at that time, it was like probably 30 engineers that I was leading. Um, and it was a volunteer project, which I really don't recommend. Like if you think startups are hard, try like a volunteer startup where you're not paying <laughs> anyone. Um, and so, yeah, we ended up building the pod and um, bringing it out to SpaceX and competing. And we won an innovation award, which was really just like them handing us an award saying good job but it was steve davis who's like elon's number two and all these crazy projects he works on and so that kind of validation of like leading a highly technical project and being recognized by spacex i was like okay like i definitely have the confidence that a business is very different than a student project but i i had the confidence that i could go out and, and build something i guess um so that wound down like the august after i graduated in 2017 and then after that, you know, I took a few months off and then, and then was just committed kind of full-time to, to David energy. Impressive. I mean, just to have the intuition to just jump in and get started with something like that. Not everyone has that confidence. So in some ways it's definitely just inherent to who you are, I think. Yeah. So before we get into David energy and, and what you do there, um, I do want to set the context a bit. I know you mentioned DERs, um, I'm sure most of our listeners will not be familiar with that term or really the energy space as a whole. So can you give us sort of a current state um, or if uh, if you will, sort of the old world of energy? And I've seen you reference a handful of times that you think we're, en we're entering the energy renaissance. So sort of where are we today and uh, what are you al alluding to when you talk about the energy renaissance? Yeah, so... Um, you know, I think that as far as like the state of the world today, I mean, the grid, we really built it out starting in the 1930s and sort of its modern form, which is really this hub and spoke model. Like we'll build a big coal, nuclear, hydro, natural gas power plant, say uh, 100, 200 miles away from city centers. We're not really building them like in the center of New York City. I mean, there's some, but a lot of our power comes from, say, upstate New York. Um, and then we'd pump that power long distances to transmissions, and then we'd step it down to a distribution network, which the utility owns and controls, like all the poles and wires you see. So yeah, it was really this hub and spoke model, big centralized power plants, and then you kind of just pump it out radially to where people live. Um, but now distributed energy resources, um, like I mentioned, they, they go in customer homes and buildings. So for the first time in history, like you can put solar on your roof and it creates electricity right where you live. Or because we have a natural gas distribution system built out, you can put a backup generator in your backyard or a ground source heat pump, which pulls heat out of the ground and, and turns it into electricity. So there's all these new technologies um, and especially you know electric vehicles too, where we're charging our cars at home now instead of going to a gas station. That's really fundamentally altering the way people interact with the grid and the way we we build the grid. So it's becoming, like I said, you know, it's distributed and these devices are digitally native. Like you may have an app that gets you into your Nest or your Tesla. So you can build an API to connect to these devices. And so I, I think of it as like the grid is starting to look a lot like the internet or a, a network, not a hub and spoke model. Um, and so there's a hundred million of these devices in the U S today, and we're expecting close to a billion by the end of the decade. So just massive growth in the sector. And we see that wave coming and 
you know, see there's a huge opportunity here to do things a bit differently. And the incumbents aren't really positioned to structurally positioned to adapt to that wave that's coming. And and so that's right. kind of where we see our opportunity. Love it. So you see a huge change or you're, you're already, yeah, you're witnessing a huge change. It's already occurred in terms of the energy grid uh, becoming more distributed and you're taking advantage of that. You're leaning into that. So now we can dive into David Energy. So what's your solution to this big change that's underway? Yeah, so the, the core sort of thesis from day one, and, and you'll hear kind of echoes in the, in the problem I got interested in, is when solar and wind are producing, they produce at zero marginal cost. So power is basically free when these resources are producing for the most part. Um, but then when they're not producing, power gets a lot more expensive. We're turning on like dirtier, more expensive natural gas plants and stuff, say in a market like Texas. So when you have things like batteries or electric vehicles or smart thermostats for the first time in history, we can actually shift customer demand around. That didn't used to be the case. Actually, meters in much of the country right now that record your energy usage are like clocks that wind around analog. And a guy with a clipboard walks out and reads it like once every three months. Like that was our data resolution. Now we have smart meters that reads the data on like sub-second intervals and um, devices in the home that we can connect to and actually change customer demand. So basically as prices are increasing in the market, electricity is traded in real time like any commodity just based on supply and demand. And it's actually the most volatile commodity in the world. So intraday, it would be like if you went to the gas station in the morning and gas was $4 a gallon and you went in the afternoon and it was $2,000 a gallon. That's what happens in power markets. So um, we see this massive opportunity where we can connect to these customer devices. And when power is expensive, we can adjust their thermostat from 72 to 76. We can tell their EV to stop charging. We can flip on their backup generator. So we can shift their demand away from those expensive times which we view increasingly as more and more solar and wind enter the grid is also very much correlated with when renewables are producing. So we view kind of this, and this is where the energy renaissance, I guess, comes in is when power is cheap and when power is clean is getting more and more correlated over time. And so we want to build the operating system for that modern grid where customers can get cheaper bills and cleaner energy. Um, There's also benefits like, if you have solar and a battery or even the new Ford F-150 Lightning, you can plug that right into your home and it backs your home up for three days. So customers like outages are going to become a thing of the past. So there's all these ways in which clean energy resources, distributed energy resources are vastly superior to their um, predecessors. And so we're focused on the customers that are adopting these resources. And we view like a core advantage, a moat, in connecting to those resources as their their power provider. So ultimately, that's what David Energy is doing. We are the commodity provider of electricity. We connect to the customer's devices. And by having access to those devices, we provide them the cheapest power that they can find. Um, happy to like break down what market segments we're going into, but but that's like the broad thesis that exists across like all you know product lines or business lines that will will launch in the in the, in the future. Great. So when you say customers, I know today you're starting to dip your toes into B2C, which we're going to talk about in a bit, but let's focus on where you've been over the last several years, which is B2B. And let's think about what has your go-to-market motion been since day one and how, is, how has that evolved? Like what's your team? What's your go-to-market motion today? Yeah. 
So, yeah. So first of all, I mean, yeah, our core product right now is B2B, but per- particularly like this kind of mid-market enterprise, multi-location brands and chains and franchises. So like quick serve restaurants and gyms primarily, but sure. probably retail, retail storefronts as well. And then we're very geographically focused, primarily in New York and Texas right now, that, although that'll expand. Um, and the product offering to them is a lot of them actually still don't even have smart thermostats. Like this mid-market has been sort of overlooked uh, compared to consumer and, and large commercial. Um, and so if they need thermostats, we'll install them. And then we control that thermostat and we give them an energy management software platform that um, is actually free for now um, that they gain access to and, and get all these insights into how they're using energy and how they're operating their facilities if they sign uh, their power contract with us, which at the same time, they're usually saving 5 to 10% on their energy bills because we now have access to that thermostat. Um, we can control it on the priciest times of the year uh, to, to sort of avoid buying at those times. Um, we do see, you know, refrigeration controls is probably next on the roadmap for say quick serve restaurants and then, um, you know, EV chargers and parking lots and maybe solar and batteries are also coming to the segment, but we view thermostats as sort of the wedge in. Okay. So that, that's like the product offering in B2B. Um, as far as uh, the go-to-market, I mean, as our head of sales calls it, I mean, a lot of these guys are like blue, blue-collar millionaires. Like they own 20 McDonald's or Dunkin' Donuts or whatever, and they're not going to respond to like marketing campaigns on Facebook or direct response marketing or you know um, stuff like that. It's really a sales-driven approach, almost like a more old world go to market strategy kind of kind of yeah thing. i mean yeah we're going to trade shows we're we're building referral partnerships with their trusted advisors we're getting warm intros in um yeah. really kind of account executive led like we'll probably add content marketing and in other forms of marketing as we go especially like into newsletters at the associations they belong to and things like that to sort of augment that that almost like enterprise type like sales motion um driving towards probably more like an account-based marketing approach. But for now, it's like really kind of where do these franchisees hang out? Like what are their networks? How do we bust into those networks organically and just like yeah. meet people and and do it the old like handshakey way, you know, which was, I think took us a while to get to because it's very counterintuitive for a tech company. Everyone wants to like right. hire the best marketer and go straight into like product marketing. But, you know, when you look at social and, um, search and a lot of these marketing forums, like a lot of them are very saturated and people are going back to like cold calling and, and some of the stuff we're well, doing. Because, the thing is also yeah. how many of your customers are aware that there is a solution to this problem? Like how much of your go-to-market motion is actually education focused? No, I mean, that's, um, you know, I think we were going to get to this a bit later, but we always say like, we're selling against inertia. Like there's not like customers flip their lights on and and they view their energy as a fixed cost. Right. Um, so from like a product standpoint, um, for a while we were trying to break into like selling them what we cared about and not what they cared about. And we realized mm. that, Hey, we're installing thermostats and we're connecting to their thermostats. Like we can see all these problems going on with their operations. Like maybe their employees are messing with their thermostats. Maybe an HVAC unit is broken that they don't know about. And so we started building the product in terms that they understood and we were getting what we wanted in exchange. So 
I think, you know, both on like the product and marketing front, it was like, you know, we were, we're, we're, we're not, we don't have like a big competitor in the space necessarily. We're selling against like their business as usual. Yeah. So even if our product is, is impressive and a lot better than anything else that's out there, they're like, well, energy is a small line, item, a line item expense. And like, why do I care about this? You know? <laughs> so, uh, 10% on their energy bill is maybe like 10% savings of like 3% of, of something on their P and L, you right. know? So, um, we really had to like build that, that intuition around, around the customer and, and, and sell in the way that they wanted to be sold to and build a product in a way they wanted to be, be kind of what, what they cared about, I guess. So um, how did you get to that level of customer empathy? Like I think back to when I started Fluvio and it was super intuitive and easy for me because I was the buyer. Like I had grown product marketing teams at tech companies and that's now who we sell to. Um, you have never operated a business like a franchise. So how did you get yeah. that customer empathy? I, I don't think I did. Um, I hired people who have it. Um, so like, you know, me and my VP of product always, always, uh, sort of joke. And he, he's like, it's actually kind of refreshing. Like I'll work for CEOs that are like, we're customer obsessed and all this stuff. And like, I did not start from the customer's viewpoint. I mean, I started in like a very, very abstract high level sense of like, building a much better grid and higher performing grid that is is good for customers at the end of the day but like as far as empathizing with what their day-to-day -day problems are i never yeah. really i didn't start there or back have that. or that. <laughs> yeah and i well i didn't even back into it myself like i hired a vp of sales who um whose dad was coo of dunkin donuts and he used to own franchises himself and he spent his career selling tech solutions into um, these, uh, um, this ICP and, and he coined the term, like he said to me in our interview process, they're, they're blue collar millionaires, you know? So he knew the ins and outs of that space. Right. And then our VP of product is like a true product person who is extremely empathetic and really doesn't care about my theories on the grid. He just listens to customers and what their problems are. And so I think, um, I was almost even blessed in a way of like not being a product or sales driven CEO. Like I just have a vision for where right. I want to take the company, which I think will made me like le less effective in the early days and hopefully makes me more effective down the road, I guess, as in the company's life cycle. But um, really we, we hired functional experts who could connect customers needs to the, to the vision of the business and really empowered them to, to, to solve problems. So like yeah. our MVP and go to market was kind of crap, like to start, but <laughs> we scrapped our way there and, 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 and got enough traction to like get, um, really amazing people in the seat who are now really driving a lot of the vision and strategy there. And, um, and, and they have that, that empathy and understanding of our customer needs that I've, I've obviously like learned through them. And I, I ultimately care that our customers are happy, but to say that I'm like, the driver of that is, is just, uh, you know, kind of, kind of ridiculous, I guess. <laughs> so you, you yeah. definitely came at it with a different angle. I mean, you, I think found just an enormous problem in a changing environment and you had a creative solution to it. It's funny. I had on Anil Lakani uh, a couple of weeks back. He's a, a venture partner at Crane VC. And I asked him the question around when he invests in companies does he want to see founders who have been customers of their new company, right? So they, they are intimately familiar with these problems. They've dealt with it themselves. 
Um, and he said, yes, that's, that's great. But if, if the founders don't have direct experience in the space, they, they at least need to show that they recognize how important it is to have customer empathy. And for you, you clearly did. And you hired around that. Um, right. Exactly. Your point, you're, you're now in a position to absorb that and you've learned and grown. Yeah. And it's, it's knowing your strengths and weaknesses. Right. And like, you know, my strengths are around like this, the vision that I have that is unchanging in the energy industry, right. but like, we're going to build, we're already launching our just launched last week, actually our second business line, which is B2C, which I'm sure we'll talk about. Um, and I think there's already three, four, five different business lines in my head, because when you think of like building the modern energy company, like everyone uses energy. So I can't be the person that's empathetic or an expert in like every um, product line that we're going to launch, right? I'm going to hire sure. great people in each of those segments as, as we continue to build out the business. So I know I've read some some things you've written in the past and you, and you talk a lot about verticalization or bundling as being your path, path forward. Um, can you describe what you mean by that? Yeah, and so I, th I think it comes back to that original thesis where... Um, basically our core insight and what we think will be a driver of like a network effect in our enduring moat over time is being a supplier of energy who can control customer demand. And so we have to build basically, um, you know, it's funny starting in B2B, we had to build a retail energy company, which you can think of like health insurance, um, in a way, like they manage risk for customers. We promise a fixed price for customers and they can lock that in for two years. So like if Putin invades Ukraine and like energy prices blow out, they're insulated from it, um, you know, because power is so uh, volatile. And then we're building essentially like that enterprise SaaS platform in a way for, for yep. our ICP. And then because a lot of these customers don't ha even have thermostats or a lot of these devices, we we have like a lot of mechanical engineering automation engineers um on the um on the team where how do we get devices installed how do we connect to these devices so we almost had to build three businesses in one to execute on the strategy um and but it all stems from that idea of like going vertical means we're the commodity provider and the best user of the data coming off these customer DERs is the commodity provider and the way i think about it is it's like being a health insurance company that could choose when or even if your customers get sick. Um, like how how much better could you price those premiums, uh, health insurance premiums, if you could control if they, you know, you could stop them from going to the hospital, essentially. Like that's what our technology unlocks. So the vertical element was just like we had to be the energy company and we had to build the tech. Um, right. and we knew that day one. And, and so that's what we went out and, and did. Well, so you started with the software, you started with tech though, right? You started, you started with software. Well, yeah, it was a little, um, sort of nuanced. Like I met, I, I was, I had kind of come up with the idea and I met in, in, in sort of exploring that idea, one of our co-founders who had built, um, technology for, um, another company, uh, like a small team. And they had a few customers and, um, basically we were very aligned day one on like what we wanted to do. And, and so he was basically like, Hey, actually our owner is trying to sell the business. Um, maybe you should just buy them. And like, we do this thing together. And so, um, we did like a really small friends and family round, acquired that business and then sold like the bigger story to, um, 
to 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 VCs and were able to raise capital like shortly thereafter. Um, but that tech platform was like mainly in the large commercial space. Uh, so we ended up pivoting to this like B2B segment, but, but yeah, like we had kind of users on that product prior to launching the energy business. So it was always the plan to launch the energy business, but we didn't like really launch our full product like in our core ICP until probably, you know, a year and a half, you know, into the business, I guess, maybe even two years. Um, because it took so long to like get set up and, so you and, waited and actually become a we're verticalized. Yeah. I mean, we were learning a lot about the space. We had paying customers, um, doing like a software only approach, um, almost like a SaaS platform, but it was always the intention to sort of give the software away for free in order to, to become, you know, to get the energy contract. We just couldn't really implement that strategy until we actually got set up. Um, so I think it was, you know. 20 late really early 2021 when we had raised capital in like mid 2019 that we actually launched the energy business and and kind of the full strategy behind it so it it was nice though we had like paying customers in a lab for like a year and a half leading into that right all right so at this point we've teased the fact that you have a b2c offering which is very new um your core business has focused on b2b um, but you're starting to dip your toes into b2c so Let's chat a little bit about the unique challenges within each one of those segments. Yeah. And so I think I, you know, I think I talked about the B2B a bit um, in that really, um, you know, we're selling against inertia. Like how do we get an owner of like 20 franchises to care about like a small line item on their P&L? Although I think that's getting bigger. Like we just talked to um, a CFO where they were like, yeah, my bills uh, last year were 450k, and this year they're 800k, and like that's purely from energy inflation, and like that 350k comes directly out of their bottom line as an owner, and so that's that's meaningful, right? When they have a big portfolio, um, so so yeah, but it is it is kind of like it's a lot of education, um, like you said, kind of like a white glove consultative sale. Um, and, and really, like we said, selling against inertia, but we have built a product in such a way to remove every barrier to saying no, like your energy contract is going to be cheaper than what it was. Like the software platform, which you like is free. Uh, so like, why, why would you, why would you say no? Um, and so that we've really focused on like, if, um, they don't really care or if inertia is against us, like let, let's just make it basically impossible to say no and how we sell the product right. and how we well, that was like a, to, have, to have that problem. Do you think, and, and this is a little bit off script, but are you planning for a world where you will have competitors where these buyers are going to be like RFPing for this and, and they understand the alternatives? Yeah. So, I mean, the really sophisticated buyers of which it's mainly in the larger commercial space, like less so in RACP, but as you get like a vertically integrated brand like Chipotle, like they're RFPing you know, I'd mentioned we're basically three separate companies. They run RFPs for three separate point solutions, essentially. Mm. And there's a huge benefit to bundling those three point solutions. Um, so we will eventually like move into making that sale. Um, but we're starting in a market that, you know, it's kind of the Goldilocks zone of the right the right size for us right now. What's uh, What are you experiencing so far entering the B2C segment? 
Yeah. So, in, yeah, I guess in, in summary, like in B2B, it's just, just getting them to care about what we're selling and, and refining the ways to do that. Like it's, it's mainly a business model innovation on, on bundling like that. Um, but then in B2C, I find a bit more exciting, honestly, like B2B is going to be a great business for sure. But B2C is like, I probably do have more customer empathy here. Like I'm a DER nerd myself. Um, I don't own any, my, I don't own any, but like I want an EV and like, I want to buy a home and like trick my home out with all these resources. Um, but there's also just way more white space. Um, we can sell to any franchise, like anyone needs a thermostat. But when we look at B2C, it's like, how many Tesla owners are there out there really? Like how many actually have batteries? How many actually have backup generators? Um, so I think from a go-to-market perspective, um, we've started with, um, we've lucked into some like partnerships with, uh, groups that are doing the install. So we know we're taking this very targeted approach where every customer we sell through these channel partners has the devices that we want and need and are going to integrate with. But we do view ourselves building a direct practice and sort of a dominant brand in the space is is what we're we're really after. So um, it's really just, I, I mean, there's we really don't know yet, right? Like we're just getting started in B two C. We're we're optimizing for a lot of learning, I think. And um, you know, the acquisition problem in consumer is obviously a, a, a gnarly one. So um, it, it, it's going to be a lot different than the B2B space. Like it's a totally different kind of marketing driven, partnership driven go to market compared to like a traditional enterprise sale motion. Um, and so we're, we're staffing that team completely differently as well, uh, which I think is interesting. It's like the same core thesis and advantage, but just like a totally different problem space that we, we're still learning a lot about. Right. Yeah. I mean, intuitively partnership seems to make a lot of, a lot of sense there. Um, right. But so, you know, there's, know. there's a lot of people with EVs out there who just are looking for a good energy rate in, in markets like Texas, where customers have to choose an energy provider. So they're a bit more informed than say, in the, in like the Northeast where your default is the utility, your local utility. So I don't know, there's, we're, we're figuring it out. Like we have some early wins on the partnership front, but, but direct is really, really exciting to us. So we're, we're starting to explore that as well. Yeah. Exciting. Well, I always like to ask folks around my podcast about how they make decisions. I always find it really interesting to kind of uh, pick everyone's brains on this. And for you, honestly, you come from a different angle in that you jumped right into entrepreneurship before you ever worked for a large company. For instance, I learned a lot about decision-making while I was at Amazon. I talk a lot about principles and how they serve as sort of the the basis for decision-making for me and for the company. Um, how do you think about making decisions? Do you have a process sort of you put yourself through? Yeah. You know, I, I think, um, you know, a lot of this is probably, um, innate in a way, or as like a talent that I, that I do have, like, um, I've always felt fine making decisions, like confident in, in doing that. A lot of people don't like making decisions, but I, I don't have a problem with it. Um, especially the big ones I find, I find fun and like challenging. Um, but I would say the most influential to me was, um, you know, Nassim Taleb's anti-fragile really kind of crystallized like the idea of risk-taking and how it relates to making decisions under uncertainty, um, that I've really started to apply, um, you know, as an entrepreneur and had to learn a lot in doing this, but 
it, it's a pretty simple. It, it basically, I've like learned from first principles, I guess, which is I am always looking for risk asymmetries. By that, I mean a, a positive risk asymmetry is where you have tons of potential upside, really unbounded upside, and capped downside. So if like I can buy a stock, uh, I spent twenty dollars on it, um, and I think uh, the company could be massive one day. My upside is fairly unbounded, and my my downside is what you know could go to zero, and I lose twenty dollars. Um, when you look at maybe that's maybe like a more venture style investing. If you look at like why I don't invest in public equities at all, um, it's much more like limited upside. A lot of them are growing maybe a few percentage points a year. Um, that's not always true, but you also have like massive downside. So you need to like push more dollars in for the same benefit. So a positive risk asymmetry is basically when you have unbounded upside and capped downside, which you try and make that downside as, as small as possible. And a negative risk asymmetry is when you have uncapped downside and very limited upside, like big bets that could go very wrong. Um, so especially in startup world, like you're constantly trying to find like what's the cheapest experiment, cheapest cost I can run with the maximum possible benefit. And then you just line up the strategies um, that you could pursue given the, the limited resources you have and you go after the ones with the biggest asymmetry uh, to the positive. And so um, on the fly, like I'll even just sort of three questions I ask myself is like, can this kill us? How bad can it hurt us? And then what is the potential benefit? So you never, never want to do something where number one is yes, this can kill you. Um, and I think a lot of people start with three. They're like, how big is the potential benefit here? And then they just launch into these like big, gnarly, complex projects that they haven't fully thought through. Um, they haven't done the costing side of the analysis. And so... Um, you know, but it's entrepreneurship. Like sometimes you have to make decisions that can kill you. You know, we've done that in the life cycle of the company and you just need to really trust your gut and be intuitive that like you don't lose when you're making those decisions because and you avoid them at, at all possible costs. Um, so I don't know. That's That was just like a first principles framework that I have, but it really, any sort of strategy framework that you look, look to and probably a lot of the corporate world is just like, what's the goal of this and what's our cost benefit analysis of pursuing it. And, and you just, you kind of do that on the fly and you, you make um, bets with, with good asymmetries in them. Yeah. I think a lot has to do with the environment you sit within as well. I mean, you talk about sort of capped downside, but the growth at all costs mindset of the last couple of years or probably really a decade, but very specifically the last couple of years is really coming back to bite a lot of companies, which is a good segue. I want to get your take on the current state of the economy, the tech ecosystem, and specifically venture, the venture back space that you sit in. I've been speaking with and hearing from founders and VCs that are telling folks that companies will need to survive into 2025 with their existing capital. That that might be a little bit dramatic, but that is what folks are being yeah. told. But I also know you've continued to hire. So how are you thinking about balancing, taking advantage of available talent, growing aggressively um, in this very challenging backdrop? Yeah. You know, I, I think part of it is like the get get greedy when people are fearful and get fearful when people are greedy. Um, and, it, and it's a good time to press when... Um, when um, people are sort of being more risk off is, is a good time to be risk on and take advantage. Um, and, 
you know, we raised capital at the perfect time. Like we closed our round, um, a big series a right before, uh, sort of the downturn and sort of immediately, we definitely did cut our plan, hiring plans considerably. So it's a lot easier to step on the gas than step off of it. So we were lucky that, um, we didn't have to do any sort of big, um, staff staffing cuts or anything like that. But, um, you know, I think there's a few dynamics going on. Like one, a lot of capital has been raised by venture capital firms that still needs to be moved in like a three to five year fund life. So I think it's more that there's a flight to quality. So there actually is going to be um, sort of an imbalance in the market where if you're doing okay and you're kind of struggling along, um, it's going to be really, really hard to raise capital. It's gonna, There's going to be a lot of down rounds. But if you're crushing it, there's a flight to quality and you may even see like, valuations like essentially unchanged. And that's sort of doubly true in the sector we're in, which is there's a lot of climate money that's been raised. And when we have that story behind us too. And so if you're a well performer in this market, I do think the capital is still out there. So, I mean, we started our, um, like I said, we were building kind of three businesses at once. We were very used to being very capital constrained. That became a little less, less true when we raise this last big round of funding, but we're keeping that discipline and that focus and that being very methodical about every, um, sort of body that, that we hire and that we bring on. Um, and so we're comfortable with really just searching for escape velocity and not chasing like vanity or growth metrics. So we're definitely very patient. Um, but you know, I think at the end of the day, like I see a market that, we're in energy. It's like counter cyclical. There's massive tailwinds behind this. And we have a product that's starting to really work and we're going to continue to invest. And we can't really control the capital markets around us. Maybe the Fed reverses and things bounce back 12 months from now. Like no one really knows. And so at the end of the day, we still remain confident that if we are a high performing company in the space, there's still plenty of capital out there looking for a home and we'll be able to find, we'll be able to you know, go out and, and raise the capital that we need. And we also think our existing cap table is really behind us. So, you know, it's really dependent on every business. This isn't true for everyone, but um, as a general operating principle, like we, you, you kind of have to tune a lot of that stuff out and just do what makes sense for your business and invest as it's required. And and we're chasing like an ex- a crazy expanding market right now that um, a lot of it is a land grab. So we don't, we don't see the need or the reason to, to slow down. Yeah. Um, and we actually saw this once before, you know, we, two weeks after COVID hit, um, we said like, Hey, if their capital is drying up, like it doesn't make sense to be like a mid level SaaS company right now. Like we need to build this retail energy company and like get to market. And so we doubled burn like three weeks after oh, lockdown wow. started. <laughs> and so that, that paid off that bet paid off. We raised a seed on the, on the sort of six months from them at right as the market was like roaring back. So it was the right call at the time. Um, but the other thing I'm hearing from investors just to end on is like, they're very, very afraid of the SaaS companies that are saying like growth is stagnating, but we have 10 years, 10 years of runway. Cause it's like, what, what are you even going to do with that capital? Like the, the market is against you right now. So that's not true in our, in our, in our business in our, in our sector, I guess. Um, right. so we're, we're just going to keep chasing what the market is telling us to do. 
right? I mean, frankly, you do sit in a, in a decent spot in energy. Energy is one of the few verticals that's actually people still need it. Yeah, and holding up quite well. And they want to save money on it, right? <laughs> right. I mean, it's yeah. a yeah. And then the other angle here is that you did raise a Series A from Union Square Ventures, a, a top tier VC. So quality sort of check the box there. Yeah. Um, so before we end things, uh, I would love to know who or what has had the biggest influence on you. It's funny. I, you know, I end up drawing, like people ask me like what podcasts I listen to and what books and stuff. And like, I actually, I love music and movies and like a lot of the podcasts I, I listen to are more like kind of art like more from the art and film scene and like what's going on in like the avant-garde of culture, I guess. And like the, you know, the New York scene, how it's burgeoning right now. Um, yeah. I mean, the podcast I really like right now is like the Ion pack. One's in a band, one's, one's a filmmaker. That's probably what I listen to the most, but I don't know. I draw a lot of inspiration from how artists talk about creating things. I think there's a lot of parallels with entrepreneurship. Like, I don't really buy that there's analytical people and creative people. Like I think starting a business is an extremely creative endeavor. It's more like building something in the real world, uh, you know, in the material world, not necessarily like building a song that's maybe in like the spiritual or like emotional world, I guess. So there's, it's not art in any way, shape or form, but I more listen to just people who are like, have created things at scale um, and a lot of times that I'm just like more drawn to how, uh, our, our, our artists like talk about yeah. that, I guess then. Um, so I don't know. I was, someone asked me like who my mentor would want to be once. And I said like Rick Rubin, cause he just like has this knack yeah. for, um, pulling the greatest performances out of artists. And, and I, I think like listening to him talk about, um, the act of creation is like hugely inspiring to me within that. I mean, the non-pretentious answer is like. I have, you know, Zach Weinberg, he was our first investor. Um, he is an incredible operator and I leaned on him a ton for like how to build a company being as green as I am, um, in, in building a company or like a guy like Kieran, but he leads Arcadia, which is like one of the first breakout software companies in our space. He was an early investor and mentor. So, um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of people kind of in, um, in in uh the space but uh that that i lean on but as far as like inspirations i don't know it was like david bowie and like james murphy and stuff like that like yeah like i don't know i I love that it's a good answer and i agree like building a company is actually quite creative there's no playbook yeah all right well thank you thanks bo for taking so much time uh before we jump how can listeners follow your journey um yeah i mean i uh i guess like twitter um uh, I'm less active on it now, but I, I, I read a lot on it. And then, um, the, the DER task force community that you may have mentioned, uh, it's just drtaskforce.com. We have a Substack and a podcast. And like, if any of the distributed energy stuff was like interesting, um, uh, to anyone, uh, listening, then, um, you know, uh, that's, that's a good place to kind of dig in deeper, I guess. Awesome. Well, thanks again. Uh, and take care. Thank you so much, Devin. See you soon, man. And that's a wrap on this episode of Embracing Erosion. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with James. If you have any comments, feedback for the show, or have a guest that you'd like to have on, 
please feel free to reach out to me directly. My email is devin at fluviomarketing.com. And if you're looking for additional product marketing resources, as well as all of the episodes, please visit fluviomarketing.com slash resources. Until next time.